Canadian Military History Podcast. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Before I get into today's episode and our guest, I want to cover off a bit of feedback. First of all, last night on the 18th of January 2014, because today is the 19th, I attended the Red Hackle Dinner, which is the annual dinner of the Toronto Black Watch Association. And I managed to get a significant donation for the podcast. So thanks to the Toronto Black Watch Association for that. Next, I want to get into some feedback. I got a review, a quite lengthy review, by the two true freaks, Scott Gardner in particular, on the Star Trek Monthly Monday podcast. And he did a thorough review of the podcast, how he came to find out about it, and what he thought about it. He was formerly in the United States Air Force. And he enjoys it, even though he doesn't have anything to do with Canadian military history. He thought it was well put together, and he really enjoyed it, and he gave me a great review. So I appreciate that. I want to thank some people for putting some posts on the guest book. I've got Mark Kendall, and he will be mentioned in this podcast on January 12th, 2014. And he posts, Mike, thank you for all your hard work. Thank you for reaching out to everyone. This is the kind of thing that everyone can learn and benefit from. So thanks a lot to Mark Kendall. We also have someone from overseas, which I always knew there would be an international reach, and I'm glad to see that that's actually coming about, and I'm glad to get some feedback from people who don't live in Canada. So we have, hello Mike, I routinely listen to your podcasts on my morning run in the Cotswold Hills in Gloucestershire. I'm sure that they pronounce it probably Gloucester or something of that nature, I'm not quite certain. I'm just reading it phonetically, Gloucestershire, but I'm sure they just simply pronounce it Gloucester. I was in the RAF for 16 years and served alongside Canadian Forces members both in Bosnia and the first Gulf War. I was very impressed with their commitment and professionalism, and culturally the differences between the CF and the RAF seem pretty negligible. This is perhaps why I enjoy the podcast, as I feel I am listening to like-minded people. I expect the Canadian Forces, just like the Royal Air Force, has aspects that frustrate or infuriate, but your speakers are fine ambassadors for the Canadian Forces and Canada in general. Keep it up. Thank you very much, Blair, for that great post, and we did manage to connect on Facebook, so that's fantastic. I have another review, an iTunes review. Someone gave me five stars. Their handle is... CDN75, so Charlie Delta November 75. Now, 75 seems to jump out at me because I know 75 is sort of one of the nicknames of the Toronto Scottish Regiment. It sort of ties into the history of the Toronto Scottish. So I don't know if this Canadian 75 person is a member of the Toronto Scottish or something else. Great to hear from you, CDN75. Thanks for the five stars. And he writes, great guest with interesting, inspirational stories. Looking forward to every episode. Thanks a lot for the iTunes review. 
What I need you to know about the iTunes review is they help gain visibility for the podcast. The more reviews, the more five stars especially, it gets me more attention on iTunes, which attracts more future listeners, which is always good for the podcast. Now, speaking about iTunes, I reviewed the settings on my iTunes feed and it seems there was actually a problem on my end. Last time around I said, just go into iTunes, click subscribe, click uh, load previous episodes, but actually there was a default setting on my end that only allowed 10 episodes to be posted at a time. So right now I'm working through that issue and I hope that in short order that will be resolved. Today my guest is a very good friend of mine, someone who I have served with throughout my military service. Actually, I met him right when I joined, and then he went off to Namibia, and then he went off to the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment, and we never really grew apart. We always knew who each other was, but we really didn't strike a strong friendship until he came back from working with the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment, came back to the Toronto Scottish. And then we worked full-time during the year and also full-time during the summer together in different parts of the same organization, but we're essentially working shoulder-to-shoulder every single day. Bruce is a good friend. He's now moved on to the Lincoln and Welland Regiment, and he's currently the Deputy Commanding Officer of the Lincoln and Welland Regiment. Now, if I was to define Bruce in any type of term, I would say, well, at least in the professional sense and as he's working, I would describe Bruce as a no-nonsense type of soldier. In other words, don't bother with all the nonsense and all the stuff. Let's just get to work. Let's get the job done and let's get it done efficiently, properly, correctly, and move on to whatever else is next. And all this extra nonsense that goes on, all the background noise, he really doesn't want to put up with it. He doesn't want to pay attention to it. And he will call it. He will call that what you're doing there, that's unnecessary. What you're doing there is wasting time and effort. Let's just focus on what we really have to do and move whatever it is that's in front of us, move that forward. I really appreciate Bruce coming onto the show and being interviewed for the podcast. I will be splitting his episode up into two parts. It did go on for a long time, but nevertheless, I do appreciate him having his story recorded. And here is my interview with Major Bruce Mayer. Major Mayer, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. I've been listening to the show for a while, so I'm kind of flattered that you'd have me on. Thank you very much. (laughs) So you and I met during PT at Fort York Armory when we were doing laps of the Parade Square balcony. Yes. And I had recently decided that I wasn't going to bum cigarettes off anybody anymore, and I started to buy my own. And during one of the laps, I reached into my pocket, and why were we wearing full combats for PT anyways? It was. (laughs) And then I threw a nearly full pack of smokes right into the garbage. And you were right behind me, and you were quite pleased to see that happen. Yeah, yeah. I think that was the first time I ever sort of noticed who you were doing those laps around the parade square there. I think seven laps was a mile. Yeah. We used to quite often do it with the old FNs above our heads, <laughs> full gear, combat boots, helmet webbing without much thought to knees or ankles or anything like that. But yeah, that's the first time I remember saying, oh, who the heck's this guy? <laughs> that was funny, because it wasn't quite long after that. We weren't allowed to run in combat boots anymore. Yeah. And... For guys like us, it seemed to be a bunch of nonsense because how can you not run in combat That's boots? Right. Like, isn't that what it's all about? <laughs> the beginning of the end. The quality has gone down, hasn't it? Yes. So you've had a chance to review the questions, and I know you've listened to other people answer the questions. And something that you remarked on before was the fact that when you're listening, you can't help but get distracted by your own thoughts to the answers to the questions. So you've you had quite a while to think about these answers. That's right. When people start going and it triggers memories of my own, and I think to myself, oh, I'll have to mention that, and hopefully I've caught most of it. 
yeah, it's sometimes hard to follow almost because, yeah, you get so wrapped up in thinking about the things that it's reminding you of that you, you sort of forget that the other guy's still talking. <laughs> so why did you join the Canadian Armed Forces? Why did I join? I always knew as a kid I wanted to be in the military. It was one of my earliest memories. I always knew I wanted to be regular army, airborne infantry. I would go into the library, get the old Sentinel magazine every month that came out, read it religiously, honing in on anything about the infantry or anything like that. I would go down to the CNE every year to the big recruiting display, talk to the recruiters there. But I was just a kid, so they weren't really seriously looking at recruiting me at that time. But one warrant officer sort of pulled me aside when I was probably around 15 or 16, and he said, look, if you want to join the regular army, that's great, but why don't you do two things? First of all, finish your education, and he goes, test the waters. Why don't you join the reserve? And I didn't really know much about the reserve, and I didn't really think much of the idea, to be honest, because I actually wanted to be a junior forest ranger, first of all, because I wanted to fight forest fires. So the summer I was going to turn 17, I started looking into how to be a forest ranger, went down to the application, did a bunch of stuff, and they ultimately asked me, okay, so what do you want to do this? I said, well, I want to fight forest fires. And they said, well, we don't do that anymore. And so that was it. I, I was done with that. So the words of that old warrant officer sort of reminded me. I said, okay, well, I'll try the reserve. Went down, I did the research, found out in the Queen's Zone, the Torscots, Royals, 48, those are the infantry units in town. Made a plan to go down and visit each one before I committed to anything. As luck would have it, the first one I went down to was the Torscots. And I walked in there, walked across the parade square in my Motley Crue jacket and my big red hair, my Greb Kodiaks. <laughs> and before I walked out, I was signed up. That was the end of my big plan. Proud to be a Torscot, but it was by pure luck. What was the world like when you joined? Well, obviously very different. So that was 87 I joined. We were at the height of the Cold War. We genuinely believed that the Warsaw Pact was going to move west sooner or later and we'd be fighting them. We didn't know it at the time, but it was the age that General McKenzie later described as the golden age of peacekeeping. We were in Cyprus, had been for a long time, and we were going to start doing a whole bunch of other uh, missions in Cambodia, Namibia. Bosnia was just around the corner, though we didn't know it. No cell phones, or very few. I only remember ever seeing one I think around 88 on an exercise, one of our captains who had quite a bit of money, he had a cell phone out there. It was pretty impressive. So, of course, when you're on tour, communication was, or even on an exercise, communication was next to impossible. If you got out to a payphone, great. If you're overseas, you're paying an arm and a leg for a call. So you really relied on letters, newspapers. In terms of reserve world, no one, well, I shouldn't say no one, very, very few people had operational experience. No one had two tours. I think we had two fellows. One had a tour in Egypt, one had a tour in Cyprus, and I think most units were the same. None of the officers had tours, not through no fault of theirs, it just wasn't offered. And it's my perception looking back that I think we played pretty fast and loose with rules and standards. We had a good time, but I think if we look back now at that, what we call the good old days, we'd look back with a bit of horror, I think, sometimes. Yeah. The standards have certainly been raised for us, but it was good times. Yeah, very, very different world. L things, you know, the standard for harassment and racism prevention hadn't ever been uttered. Women were not in the infantry. Women were not in most of the trades, actually. That was sort of an emerging thing. So very different days indeed. Yeah. Well, you already started with what you were like when you joined. What else can you add? You talked about your big red hair and your Motley Crue shirt. So what else about yeah. you when you joined? 135 pounds soaking wet, a big red mop of a afro almost, which people that know me now will probably have a good laugh at if they didn't know me back then. A lot of people wouldn't believe this, but I was a bass player in a heavy metal band. I felt like a lot of kids. I was kind of bored probably more than a little naive. I grew up in a pretty sheltered area, pretty sheltered life. 
I was cocky for sure, but yet I was kind of a quiet cocky. I've always been a bit introverted. This is something that always shows up in all my course reports. Private mayor needs to exert himself more. Corporal mayor needs to exert himself more. All the way up, you know, captain mayor needs to exert himself more. Uh, it, it seems to have served me pretty well, being a bit more introverted. But that being said, I love team sport. I love playing football. Move from there, just sort of playing baseball, soccer, all that kind of stuff. Individual sports, skiing, golf. And of course, the outdoorsy stuff. I was in Boy Scouts all the way up to Venturers. In fact, I was still in Venturers when I joined the Army. So I had a lot of what we call field experience. Obviously, it's different with the Scouts, but I was quite comfortable going out in the woods for a weekend with almost nothing. Leaping out in snow caves was not a big deal to me. So the field work had a bit of advantage in when it came time for that in a recruit yeah. training. I mean, again, obviously a different setting, different pressures, but it was nice to know that I didn't really have to worry about how to set up a tent or how to get in a sleeping bag. I'd done all that before. So kind of an outdoorsy person. And again, like a lot of teens in those days, and still today, probably could have done a lot better in school if I just tried. Yeah. Didn't seem all that interested. Didn't see the point of a lot of it, which is funny looking back because you spend a lot of your time in the military in educational courses or just an educational environment, if not taking a course, instructing on the course. So it's kind of funny how, in fact, I went overseas to instruct and again, looking back at that high school kid who barely wanted to go to class, it's kind of ironic that you've sort of evolved yeah. in this sort of stage. I always found that I learned best through the act of teaching. I knew my subjects better by having to learn it to teach it rather than just learn it to know it. Absolutely. Or learn it to do it. Yes, I did the AOC course, the Army Operations course, a few years back and then had a chance to apply some of the lessons I learned with my unit and then two years after the course and after a couple of years of running through estimates and battle procedure and this sort of thing, I went overseas and taught it, which exactly what you said, it was a great way to really truly understand it because now I had to look at it again from a different perspective, talk to other people to make sure I had the concept right and then actually teach it. And what a great way to truly gain understanding of a topic is yeah, to, to learn it, to do it, to teach it. You really got to get a grip on it that way. Something you just mentioned, your unit. I know you've worn two cap badges, but you've served with more than two regiments. Can you do a quick rundown? Sure. Joined the tour of Scotch in 87. A whole bunch of stuff happened, but then, long and short of it, came back from a tour with 1st Service Battalion, but didn't rebadge, of course. Went up to Peterborough to go to Trent University, so I attached myself to the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment, or the Hasty Peas. Didn't rebadge. So I stayed at Tour Scott, just attached, posted for the four years I was there because I knew I was going back to Toronto, so I didn't really see the point in transferring. Came back to Toronto, as I predicted I would, spent about five years in the Class B world with the Torscots, got hired by the Niagara Regional Police, and for the first year I was with the NRP, I stayed at Torscott, because I was, I was living in Burlington, so it was not a big deal to commute. But then I moved out to Fort Erie, and as loyal as I was to be a Torscott, as much as I loved being one, still proud of being one, it didn't make a lot of sense to me to drive by four armories en route to the, to the Torrescott Armory. So I transferred to Lincoln and Welland, where I am today. With LFRR, they, there's even more. The Royal Hamilton Light Infantry, the Rileys, got a second armory in Burlington. So yeah, I think I would have ended up driving around past five or six just to get to, to the Torrescotts. Yeah, I, I just couldn't justify that. So I, I was pretty sad to leave because a lot of my friends were there. The Torrescotts gave me my start. I owe them a lot. So it did break my heart to leave. Yeah, I couldn't look at that highway sign that says 135 kilometers every Tuesday and every Thursday night and one weekend a month when in five minutes of passing that sign to be passing Lake Street Armory. Yeah. And we always knew the links were a damn good unit. When you're a private or a corporal, and every unit does this, if you're a private or corporal in the 48th, you look at every other unit and say they're junk. If you're a private or corporal in the Torscots, every other unit's junk. But I remember as a Torscot having those thoughts about other units, but other guys saying, yeah, but... 
those guys in the links, they're actually pretty good. It's one of the only units I've ever heard of where other privates, corporals from different units said, no, no, they're, they're actually pretty cool. They're, they're good guys. Yeah. It was hard to leave the tourist cuts, but I was very happy to go to the links because they're always known as a good unit. Yeah, definitely. Sorry, I had to get my digs in there for my home. <laughs> for, for my new home. Yes, exactly. Yeah, those guys, right? Those guys, yeah. <laughs> well, and this is how you, you're setting me up here. For It took me about three years, maybe even longer, perhaps four, for me to stop referring to links as you guys. You know, I was there, I was a company sergeant major, and from time to time I'd still refer to them as you guys, as opposed to us. It was, it was a long time for me to, to get over my, my tour scottness. Since we're digging into your memories, what's your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces, or what's your greatest achievement? That's a hard one to answer, but as opposed to trying to run through all of the various things, I'll, I'll cut right to the chase, otherwise I'd be off for hours talking about other things. I have to say my tour in Namibia in 89 was, I'd say, the most uh, memorable or, or the biggest achievement, which is kind of sad because it happened 24 years ago. <laughs> but, I mean, in those days, again, very, very few people had tours. I was 19, had been in the reserve two years. The reserve and the reg, there was a big, big gap between the two. So it was difficult for reservists to move into a regular battalion and become accepted. To be blunt, we were treated really poorly by a lot of the guys. But as is always the case, there was a few that sort of took us under their wings. In those days, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to go to university or not. I still had it in my head. I wanted to join the regular army. The reserve was still that testing ground. But the seed had been planted that maybe I wasn't going to go. And when I got over there, I saw a lot of guys having a lot of issues. One fella, his son was born while he was overseas. And there was nothing he could do about that. Another guy, his ex-wife actually kidnapped his child that he had made arrangements to stay with other people. So I saw all these guys having just a hell of a time with family life because of tours. And that really made me think, geez, do I want to be in the regular army? I take my hats off to my brothers in the regular army because what they put up with, the constant separation from their families, is just incredible. So it was within about a month of that tour, I said, nope, I'm not going to join the regs. Having a, a stable family life was more important to me. So... You know, doing that tour really put my head on my shoulders. It made me say, nope, I'm not doing that. I'll stay with the reserve. I'll go to university. I'll get education, and I'll see what happens after that. The Namibia tour I was on, it was the second of two. We got there September 15th, 89, which was just uh, three days before my birthday. I was turning 20 in theater, and the Army can take your birthday away. <laughs> they did it. We got in there, I think, on the 16th. We had our orientation. On the 17th, they grabbed a bunch of us. I think there were 17 reservists and about five or six guys from the, the Patricias and guys from First Service. So they grabbed most of the Patricias and a bunch of the, the reservists and said, right, for the first week, you guys are our quick reaction force, okay? Uh, so here's your helmets, here's your flak vests, here's where the rifles are, and here's some riot training. Oh, this is great, this is cool. And by the way, because you're quick reaction, you can't drink. Oh, so, yeah, on my birthday, I, I wasn't allowed to have a beer. <laughs> so when they say, oh, do you do take my birthday away? Yes, they can, and yes, they will. <laughs> And also, I mean, this is also the days where the two-beer-per-man rule did not exist. We basically drink what we wanted, when we wanted, and they just basically, if there were issues, they dealt with it through Queen's regulations and orders. Right. Yeah, again, different days. Working with one service was a good experience, too, for myself, because quite often as reservists, we work in, well, even, even the reg, I suspect, we work in these sort of silos. You're an infantryman, nothing else matters, everything exists to support me. But getting to see the logistical side of it, all the things involved in supporting other battalions, other units, that was a real bit of an eye-opener to see how important other units are in the whole bigger picture. Right. And it really served me well down the road when I became a quartermaster myself for a while. 
and then as an officer, understanding all that other stuff that has to happen to make the training happen, to make the operation happen. Well, the other thing that made this a really big thing for me was, again, I mentioned I'd lived a pretty sheltered life. So this was a real eye-opener to me. I went from cozy, comfortable North York to uh, very, very poor country, very austere conditions. So a real eye-opener about what some people had to do to make a living, to get by. Some real just heartbreaking stuff you'd see. It really helped me, again, as I said, put my head on my shoulders, give me a maturity sort of above and beyond my actual age, even though from time to time I have a bit of a relapse in terms of maturity. <laughs> but uh, for me, too, it was, a, it was a coming of age. We don't have that in Western society. Some societies, you get a certain age, you, you get a scar or you get bar mitzvah for Jewish kids. We don't really have anything that says, okay, now you're not a boy anymore, you're a man. So this, for me, was that, really. I left my home, went away with the army, came back. And I was a different person, so a real coming of age for me. Right. Another nice thing about the mission, too, it, it was a success. The intent was to monitor South Africans leaving. We did that, and we had to then set up elections, which were to be free and fair. We did that. The elections happened. There was no nonsense. It went off very, very well. So well, in fact, they actually cut the mission short a month or so and sent us home. So nice to look back and say, the job was done, it was well done, and the country is doing very well now. Something you can look back with a bit of pride and say, yeah, we did something, we achieved it, and good things happened after as a result. It used to be called Southwest Africa, then it became more commonly known as Namibia. It became sort of popular a few years ago when Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie started spending a bit of time there. It's kept a pretty low profile, but it's nestled just in between South Africa and Angola. There's a very, very confused political situation there as part of the deal for the UN. The Cubans were leaving Angola if the South Africans left Namibia so that the guerrillas in Angola could return to Namibia unarmed and the South Africans would stop incursions into Angola. It was all very complex. At the end of the day, it went off almost without a hitch. The first tour had a bit of a hitch. The, some of the guerrillas coming back from Angola did not surrender their weapon, and that caused some problems. Some of the police units that were supposed to disband said, well, they're not playing by the rules, so we won't. That caused some problems. But by the time we got there, to be quite honest, it was all sorted out. All told, it was a great tour. No one, was, no one was killed, no one was badly injured. As I said, a real coming of age for me, a real eye-opener, and just a great all-round experience. And the type of thing, I'd get home at the age of 20, and there's my buddies that hadn't left the neighborhood, <laughs> hadn't really done anything. And uh, I had this great experience. And, and you know, to be honest, too, it, it helped me. When I got to university, it helped me, again, with that maturity. I knew what the value of going to school was, and I knew why I was doing it. And if I ever needed reminding, I just sort of thought about how hard it could be if you don't get an education to move on. So that really helped me focus and do that. Right. Yeah, for a very long time, it really defined who I was. I'd say a good four or five years, it was a real sort of touchstone for me. Yep, absolutely. Sorry, I went on and on. That's all right. That's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, I suppose. Don't forget to listen to the rest of this episode on part two. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at cmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. 
A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.